0: Hey guys, it's me, Alex. Uh, before we start the show, let me just tell you that this episode of the Alex Cast, as with every other one, is brought to you by The Standard in Portland. It's a lovely bar that you guys have all heard about before, unless you're new to the show. And if you are, well, cool, you get to hear about it. Facebook.com slash TheStandardPDX. It's in Portland, Oregon, in Northeast, 14 Northeast 22nd. It's a lovely place. Go hang out. They have uh, cheap booze, cheap beer. And by cheap, I mean inexpensive. It's it's of the highest quality. Uh, no one has gone blind yet. It is a wonderful place. So check it out. Uh, Facebook.com slash The Standard PDX, 14 Northeast 22nd. Go, stop by. Uh, Sundays are $3 microbrews. Uh, that's when I hang out and usually sit at the bar and do some editing. So please, come, poke me in the back. Distract me. I could always use it, and it'll be fun. So, yes, I shall see you there. Please enjoy this episode. Uh, tonight, I have on Ralph White. He's an author of The Jeweled Highway on the Quest for a Life of Meaning. It's a good one. So... Please give it a listen. Ladies and gentlemen, I have on the show tonight, uh, author of The Jeweled Highway, On the Quest for a Life of Meaning, Um that is uh, Mr. Ralph White. Hello, Ralph.
1: Hello, Alex. Happy to be here.
0: Uh, thank you very much for coming on. My pleasure. So, um, how would we describe to my audience you, uh, a holistic... Leader? Is that is that good? <laughs> I was trying yeah. to I was trying to give a nice brief description and realized that I was like, Yeah, this is difficult. That's why you write a whole book, not a blurb. <laughs>
1: Well, the, uh, the, the publishers wrote on the back of the book that I'm a pioneer in the consciousness movement or the holistic movement, except you can't really call it a movement because it's not being organized by anybody. It's something spontaneous that's arising on a very broad basis. But, yes, I guess you could call me somebody who's been in the heart of the whole uh, holistic impulse for the last 40 years and, uh, you know, I'm, current, I'm one of the founders of a place called the New York Open Center. Now it's a long way from Portland, but perhaps we'll have some listeners there, which is the main center for holistic learning in New York City and has been for the last 32 years. And before that, I was uh, program director of Omega Institute for Holistic Studies, which is in upstate New York in Rhinebeck. And uh, before that, I was spent three years at the Findhorn Echo Village in the north of Scotland. So I've been involved in this whole uh, holistic impulse with all the different centers that uh, that are an expression of it for many years now. So I do that as well as being an author and uh, a writer of this memoir, which is about both my own personal inner quest for meaning. It's about the work I found in the world to do with creating these centers. And then there's a latter part of it, the jeweled highway section itself that is concerned with my own path, should we say, which is more attuned to the Western esoteric tradition and to the uh, insights of Rudolf Steiner.
0: Yeah, that was that, that was fun for me to run into. My kind of uh, journey as a as a what would I say as a weirdo uh, ran through the Western <laughs> Hermetic tradition, and I was like, "Ooh, look, Ralph's talking about stuff I know." At the end here, this is fun, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, that's nice. Uh, <laughs> it
0: doesn't happen very often. No, it's especially when you're t- dealing with that kind of stuff. I'm like, I was not gonna, I was not expecting to see as above, so below with this book. So it's like, oh, this is great. All right, uh, uh,
1: Yeah. On. Well, I mean, there's just so much emphasis upon yoga and Buddhism and shamanism. As much as I appreciate those things, it's good to remember the uh, the Western esoteric tr- and Hermetic and Neoplatonic traditions as well. It's an, uh,
0: yeah, it is. It's, it's an interesting. It's interesting what we what we've grasped onto in the West, like uh, uh, the Eastern things we we. Grabbed onto. I was, you know, not so recently, but I was. I was doing some, you know, random mantra chanting. You know, I think it was Namio Amida Kyo, one of one of the popular ones.
1: Right. And I
0: realized I have no idea what this means. <laughs> I've been, I've been, I've just, I've told that those are the the syllables to make. It just kind of, you know, it it shows you the the, the oddness that gets filtered down.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, that's why I personally prefer to my meditative practice is more um, a series of mantric verses, should we say that do uh, that are in English or can be translated into English. So I do have a sense of what the actual content of the meditation is. That's much more. That's more my preference than just a, a Sanskrit mantra. Although, of course, that can be wonderful for people for whom it works.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, they all sound great. It's just one of those things that it's, it just seems so silly that I took it for rote. You know, it's just, oh, yeah. well, these are the magic words you say. And it's like, well, that's, that's odd.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I'm for, I'm all for using the full spectrum of our critical intelligence to analyze or to uh, come to terms with whatever spiritual impulse we encounter. I'm not in favor of people swallowing stuff hook, line and sinker. So I understand completely.
0: Yeah, I like that. I like that in the book too. That's nice to, very nice to hear that you know in your travels, and especially when you're talking about like showing up the communities, well, kind of building them. That there's no specified path. You know, it's kind of à la carte spiritual, which I I like quite a lot.
1: Yeah, it's, uh, I think we're living in an age of spiritual freedom, and uh, and freedom. I think that. Uh, it, to me anyway, it's not something I'm attracted to, As just uh, living my life um, in response to a guru's indications. Other people might find that very worthwhile, but for me, I'm just too uh, independent a spirit to want to do that and too much a lover of freedom.
0: Yeah, that's very much my my way as well, which is I, you know, I'm taking nothing away from people that are on structured paths. If that works for you, that's perfect. But I just immediately when someone tells me to do something, even if I wanted to do it beforehand, I just, I I bristle. I don't, I want to do something because somebody told me to. It it makes me uncomfortable.
1: (laughs) Yeah, well, I don't blame you. I mean, they say that uh, that's the test of any genuine spiritual teacher is that they would never violate uh, your personal freedom and I think that's a very good criterion to use if you ever feel that your freedom is being violated or infringed upon you don't want to be there.
0: Yeah. So I guess we should you know kind of swing around uh what I guess can you explain what the I guess kind of what the holistic concept is you know and I mean I guess we kind of know but you know in short terms <laughs>
1: Yeah, well, not you say, get <laughs> say, there's a sense that uh, it's, it's to do with the interconnectedness of all life. It's to do with the wholeness of the human being. You know, the usual uh, statement is the integration of body, mind, and spirit. Um, so it's looking at the whole person, whether it's in, it, initially a lot of the holistic material developed around health and wellness but you can say that uh, Carl Jung's approach to individuation is uh, is a form of a holistic psychology, and you could say that uh, all the different approaches, the multicultural approaches to spirituality, contemplation, uh, the esoteric traditions—that if we include all of those in a contemporary spirituality, that that's a holistic approach to uh, spirituality. And of course, you know, I would think of I think of ecology as a classic holistic science or approach, because it understands, it proceeds from that understanding of the, uh, the interconnectedness of all life. And I think we could say that for people like me who've been involved in this now for hmm, over 40, pushing 45 years, that uh, it's been a remarkable experience to see all this stuff move from the periphery of our culture uh, much closer to its heart. So I feel that even though this is a story that the mainstream media tends not to cover because it's an evolution rather than a revolution, it's going on quietly and subtly, it's still very present. So... uh yeah, is that uh, is that something along what you were thinking of, oh, yeah, or no, what, it, wanting to talk about? Yeah,
0: yeah, no, it's a it's a, it's a good summation. It's, it's it's the problem with holistic, is, not the problem with the word holistic. I should say, is at least for my generation. I'm I'm 35 now, that it's very very wrapped up with. I don't want to use insulting but kind of woo woo you know uh spiritual yeah. nonsense yeah is, absolutely. by the time it got to me you know I don't I don't think I realized there was you know I don't want to be so so straightforward I didn't think I realized there was value in anything holistic until much later in life because it was so kind of it was just <laughs> you know it's just uh-huh. it, it seemed like silly naked people getting high and it's like that's I I you yeah. <laughs> know well, I mean, I'm not saying there's not
1: that element to it, uh, but of course you know, it, with somebody in a position like me whose task it's been to bring this kind of worldview into a gritty place like New York City where 30 years ago the, the popular perception was get out of here, this is the real world. Maybe that works in California or Oregon, but uh, this is New York. Uh, if people in New York needed one, they would already have one. Anyway, because it's been my Path or destiny should we say, to bring this work into New York that ungrounded spaced out new age woo woo stuff is simply not going to work here it, and of course in in bringing this stuff into the closer to the heart of the culture. This is one of the big dangers, and there are lots of people out there who are ungrounded, who do uh, subscribe to uh, gurus and spiritual teachers who may be lacking in a certain amount of integrity. We know we've had plentiful scandals uh, over the last 40 years around all of that, but I think it's important to realize that there are very grounded, holistic perspectives and if you take a couple of figures that uh, have been meaningful to me, like the great uh, psychotherapist, psychologist, psychiatrist, Carl Jung, or, uh, as we mentioned before, the great spiritual philosopher Rudolf Steiner, you're going to find very brilliant, deep, grounded, coherent people here who are way beyond any uh, you know flaky presentation of uh, naked people getting high, not that I've got anything against people doing that
0: oh yeah i so I
1: think I'm, you just have to you have to get out there and look for it, yeah, but I can understand because you came up in a generation where it was already there, especially if you grew up on the west coast, so it, you just take it for granted, whereas actually some of us had to really struggle to find it first of all, instead of the consumerism and the materialism and the the uh, empty philosophical dead ends that were offered to my generation at university—things like logical positivism—so we had to find this path, and then, you know, we had to try to bring it into the world in a grounded, coherent way, which involved stripping away that flaky woo-woo element as much as possible.
0: Yeah, and yeah. well, I, I, speaking for me, I'm uh, thankful for you guys having done it because. Boy, was I would not be looking forward to growing up with just you know Catholicism or the you know the big religions to look at. You know, it's yeah. it's nice to have yeah. the, the the large amount of material I had in front of me growing up. You know, it's almost. It's, it's, a, it's a sign of your generation's uh, uh, good work that I could be tired of yoga by the time I was 20, you know.
1: <laughs> right, right, whereas yoga was considered some weird thing that these Indian fakirs, you yeah. know, lay on beds of nails and stood on their heads. It was, you know, when I grew up, that was, you'd see cartoons parodying this. And, of course, now there's a yoga center on every Fifth Street corner in Manhattan, so it's been quite a change.
0: Yeah, well, it's a good change, I, I would assume, you know, yeah, not having known good, the world before, you know.
1: <laughs> yeah, you know, as you know from my book, I certainly found. I mean, I grew up in just the Episcopal Church, the Church of Wales, Church of England, and by the time I was twelve or thirteen, it meant nothing to me. I, I had to, I had to set out on a quest, you know, for some kind of deeper meaning, and I mean that's the essence of what the book is about.
0: Yeah, I mean, I guess we should kind of catch the uh, catch the audience up. Uh, you grew up in in Wales. Um, which, uh, just to – I would like to prove the American educational system is what everybody in Europe says it is. I had no idea Wales existed until I was about 23. <laughs> I, I, well, well, I mean, I'd heard of it. I just – I didn't – I thought it was England, and, and then I got yelled at very very roughly <laughs> by a Welshman, and I understand yeah. now. <laughs>
1: Right. Well, it's because a lot more Scots and Irish emigrated to America than Welsh did, you know, because the South of Wales actually had an industrial boom in the 19th century. Yeah. So there were jobs to be had there in steel and mining and so on, whereas people in the highlands of Scotland, and the west of Ireland, you know, not to mention the famine, were, uh, had no choice but to leave. So there's a much bigger Scottish and uh, an irish presence in the state so it's understandable but yeah welsh people are not happy to be called english
0: yeah oh no i I did learn that and now i'm you know happy i know the difference um, yeah yeah and i found out that the word moron means carrot that's that's all my welsh knowledge <laughs> <laughs> well i didn't know that yeah so. there's a a british comedian or i guess welsh comedian rob Brighton, pointed that out on some television show and i found it quite amusing yeah. <laughs> but uh so you leave you leave from well i mean i guess how how does it start for you? What's the I guess what's the what's the impetus? You can tell the the audience that got you going on this journey.
1: Well, I, you know, I guess you could say I was just one of those kids. You know, I don't remember exactly how old I was eight, nine, ten, whatever. But um, I was just always asking those basic existential questions. You know, what is the point? Why are we here? What is this thing? You know, the answer that. Uh, I got from the people around me was, well, you know, you grow up, you get a job, maybe you get married, maybe you have children, then you die, you know, and that's about it. It never really seemed to amount to much of anything for me. So I always had those burning existential questions. What is the point? Why are we here? What is the purpose of existence? And so that led me, you know, after I left Wales as a child to move to the very gritty northern, industrial north of England, You know, it's only real saving grace was the rock and roll that came out of it when I was a teenager. When people asked me how I got through my teenage years, it was basically beer and rock and roll. Um, So that for me, I had a very alienated adolescent being a sort of angry teenage existentialist. And it was really only when I came to the States and took that trip down Route 66 into the mystical deserts of New Mexico and Arizona when I was 21 that uh, things began to open for me and i began to perceive that there might be some deeper spiritual reality beyond the one that we can perceive with our senses because you know the world i was brought up in you know austerity post-war britain was a world of playing in bomb sites it was a father and grandfather who were in the thick of the two world wars it was you know with a very strong awareness of the horrors of the holocaust and uh, stalin's atrocities etc so I, as a teenager, thought, how could there possibly be some deeper order of reality? Uh, How could there be any kind of divine or spiritual presence in the world when such horrors could be perpetrators? They were in the first half of the 20th century. So that's how it all began for me. It was that basic existential search to make sense of the human condition.
0: Yeah, and that just kind of brings you you out to, well, essentially America. You, You end up in Chicago first, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's right. I was I came to Chicago in 1970. And so it was, it was a pretty wild time to be there. It was not long, so long after the uh, Democratic Convention in 68. Uh, Chicago was a very febrile place. It was dangerous. It was violent. It was a collection of ethnic city states. And of course, Vietnam was still raging. And uh, I was teaching, I, I got a gig as a teaching assistant at the brand new University of Illinois and Chicago Circle. So I was teaching guys who'd just come back from Vietnam, Black Panthers, and so on. I was only 21 years old. So it was a deep immersion into the tensions of American culture. I'd done a degree in American studies in, back in England, which is why I had come to America in the first place, I, but really, I wanted to experience it rather than just read about it. And being in Chicago at that time was a, actually a great learning experience.
0: Yeah, it's certainly an interesting time in American history. I, I've, you know, fortunately, well, I guess maybe fortunately, unfortunately, i don't know—I wasn't there for it. But it's really interesting to read, especially as, as somebody from from you know not the United States reading about your experiences here. It's, it's, yeah, that kind of. One step removed while still being in the thick of it. Uh, I, I don't know. It kind of made it made a little more concrete than than it was in my head previous. Oddly enough, yeah. yeah. How how was that? I mean, I guess you you know you were never here as as uh, as an American, nineteen seventy. But how did you think that that affected you? You know, essentially, you know, being you know from the UK. Is uh, there like a what was the reaction? I guess I'm asking for from Americans. I have no idea what Chicagoans <laughs> in 1970 would think of think of a, a Welsh accent. <laughs>
1: well, actually, I don't have much of a Welsh accent left. Um, well, I mean, it was fascinating. You know, I mean, you from afar, you grow up watching American TV shows as a kid. And it seems like a gleaming city on a hill. You know, then you get to New York and you find that the streets are full of potholes and that there's weird steam coming out from Mm -hmm. the streets at all hours of the day and night. And it's a lot grimier and dirtier than you imagined. And uh, Chicago, uh, even more so, I would say, at that time. So it was, you know, I mean, it felt dangerous, frankly, Um, And I had to learn to be streetwise very fast. I think I I mentioned in the book the guy who uh, taught me to be streetwise in Chicago, on the near north side of Chicago, a guy called Dennis. um, He actually had been drafted to Vietnam and had to do everything possible to avoid being sent there. And finally, he had himself committed to a mental asylum and then escaped out the back window uh, but in fact, um, Dennis was one of the sanest people I ever met. And so so I was really taught to be streetwired by somebody who was officially an escaped lunatic. <laughs> so uh, and that was somehow appropriate to the spirit of the times. There was a lot of craziness out on the streets, you know, there was a lot of tension because the war was still going on and uh, the FBI was murdering uh, Black Panther leaders like Fred Hampton on the south side. It really is, for people of your generation, even for me, looking back, it's hard to believe just how wild and dangerous and explosive, I mean, Nixon was still in power and perpetrating all kinds of infamies. So, yes, it was a... uh, It was a gripping, riveting time. It was fascinating, but it was also um, disturbing and dangerous and uh, stressful. (laughs) But I wouldn't have missed it. It was a great education. I didn't do a lot of studying at the university, but I learned from the school of life very rapidly, and it was a great education.
0: Yeah, I I kind of immediately fell in love with uh, Dennis. I Just the idea of to get out of a war it's just such a catch-22 thing to get out of war you have to go an insane asylum so then you can escape so you can teach it's just oh it's brilliant (laughs)
1: yeah (laughs) yeah wonder where he is today
0: oh yeah that's oh that's interesting oh maybe he gets in touch if he's still around you know now that the book's out (laughs) yeah
1: you know you know when you write a book and you uh, you write a memoir and it's genuine people i'm not putting a lot of surnames in there But you do wonder if uh, some of the people who you've met along the way and who feature in the book are going to stumble across it and get in touch with you for the first time in, who knows, 40 or even 50 years.
0: Yeah, that would be interesting. It'd be scary if it's some, you know, devout Republican now, you know, straight-laced, you know, tight haircut. (laughs) I don't think so. I'm very surprised if you've any kind of Republican. Yeah. But
1: people change. Yeah.
0: So uh, we moved for, uh, from, from Chicago uh, into California. Is that where you go next?
1: Yes. Well, I did answer an ad. You know, like everybody on the cusp of the 60s and 70s, I wanted to go to California. So I answered an ad for a co-driver to uh, L.A. And I always wanted to go down Route 66 because it was the first track of the first side of the Rolling Stones album. You know, if you ever a plan to motor west, taxi my way, take the highway that's the best. Get your kicks on Route 66. So I took, I, you know, I answered that ad, the, the person and I clicked and she, you know, she and I set off into the sunset, uh, the archetypal American road journey on the classic American road. And for me, it turned into a mystical experience, uh, just being the vast, and I think this is answer partially answering your previous question. What was it like for somebody coming from Britain or Europe to America at that time? You know, as you're heading down into those great deserts down there, you do feel like you're entering a western movie of some sort and then it's just the scale of the landscape the vast mazes and buttes the silence in the desert the incredible uh, starlit skies unlike anything you've ever seen before and then hearing the pure sound of silence for the first time at some 14th century Native American ruins in the painted desert Uh, these were the things they had a really deep impact on me and uh, so for me it was just it was a big spiritual opening that happened to me at the age of 20 And when I got back from that whole month long journey to the West, I really had no interest in in uh, academic studies on graduate school because graduate school wasn't addressing these mystical experiences that I had had. And my feeling was, look, if these are real and they certainly felt real then nothing could be more important. And I felt like I had to dedicate myself full-time to the exploration of these mystical and esoteric truths. So that's what really led me to leave graduate school and move to the West Coast. In this case, it was Vancouver, Canada, to devote myself to the uh, figuring out if that was real because I was starting to get glimpses of a deeper reality, shall we say, but I really wasn't sure if I was on the path to enlightenment or psychosis. So if in fact, there was any real difference between the two. So yeah, that's, so that's what happened then. And it was sort of my last hurrah of graduate school. One of the happiest days of my life was when I walked out of that. And from that point on, I was only reading material that interested me. And uh, I've been a Devoted, lifelong learner, I guess. So I, I my task was really then to acquire a lot of knowledge, should we say, or to read a lot. And, and that's been instrumental in creating these centers of holistic learning, like the New York Open Center and Omega Institute in upstate. So, yeah. So that was, you know, for me, there was the learning that came with that. But then also I've always been an adventurer. You know, I started hitchhiking as a teenager, uh, and loved it. I can still remember that rush of energy up my spine when that truck stopped because I didn't have any money. It was my passport to freedom. So, you know, there's a part of me that always wanted to stick out the farm and keep on going till the end of the road. But it was really one night when I saw a picture of Machu Picchu on TV in Vancouver that I thought, wow, what is that? Now, today, everybody's been to Machu Picchu, but 40-odd years ago, they people hadn't heard of it. I certainly didn't know anybody who'd been south of Guatemala, so I just had this sense, I want to go there. You could today you might describe it as a kind of vision quest, but it was a combination of both adventure, adventure, freedom, and spiritual quest, I would say. So, really, yeah. So, there's a chapter in the book called Hitchhiking to Machu Picchu, which I did in January, uh, started off in January of 1973. It took me about six months to get there. And then there's various things that unfold Mm -hmm. through all of that.
0: Yeah, that's the uh, what I wanted to touch on with you. It seems kind of you know, in the desert, having spiritual awakening. Uh, in comparison to having uh, uh, hepatitis or dysentery, or what, 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 what were you sick with when you were down south?
1: Yeah, in Colombia, I, I came down, Ecuador, Colombia, I did on the way back from Machu Picchu. I came down with hepatitis. Yeah, that was no joke.
0: Yeah, that's the <laughs>
1: worst days of my life. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's, I came from, uh, from Ecuador to Colombia with uh, what turned out to be hepatitis. I didn't even know what it was. I came from some, from some polluted water. So, yeah, that was an awful experience, one of those rock-bottom, nadir days that most of us have at one point or another in a lifetime.
0: See, that's the part that – that uh, not necessarily. I mean, just in anybody's story, my own or whatever, that the losing – I don't know, losing a faith is the wrong term, but I don't know if you can call it something else of – I guess, how do you – how how did you stay on it almost you know you're following this kind of train of synchronicities if you want to call it you know you're um mm-hmm. just following what you want to do and it ends up you being you know very very ill you know could you know theoretically could have died i, right. I guess I, how do how does one not take that as a sign in the in the negative not to say it is one but you know what i'm saying <laughs>
1: Well, it didn't. It just. It was the same when those punks jumped me in the slum in Barranquilla in uh, northern Colombia when the bus that I was broke on uh, broke down in the slums. and Everybody was just out. I mean, everybody was out on the street, and I wound up having the misfortune to stumble into a, a Colombian street gang. Um, you know, you can take it as you wish. You, I mean, I, I certainly it crossed my mind that I should just give up and go back to uh, Vancouver, but. Uh, you do You certainly have those moments and feelings, and uh, it was the same with the hepatitis. You know, you ask yourself, well, is that it? Should I find somebody to send me, you know, a hundred bucks or a couple of hundred bucks and so I get a flight out of here? Um, but that was never the way, you know, even though those feelings fleeted through, passed fleetingly through my psyche it wasn't something that really stayed with me. I knew, you know, I wasn't going to let those punks with their broken bottles get in the way of me going to Machu Picchu. I'd already been traveling for four months at that point, and I still had my passport and a couple hundred dollars in traveler's checks. So, you know, I was determined to get there. And uh, and then when you know when the thing happened with uh, with hepatitis, I mean, I went into my first involuntary fast. You know, if I'd had the money. I'd been flown back to America or Canada and been put on a drip, and could have spent three months in hospital. But in fact, I did my first fast. It was it was a big learning experience for me about fasting, and I got over the whole thing in eight or nine days and was right as rain. So it was a teaching to me in a sense about the regenerative powers of the of the body, uh, if left to its own devices. Uh, And I have been something of an intermittent faster over the years as both a spiritual and a health practice. So yeah it just i just didn't have the feeling okay that's it I'm going home. I just felt this is just part of the journey, and I'm just going to keep on trucking there's There's a lot more for me to learn and experience in South America as indeed there was
0: yeah it's it's such a I just think it's demonstrative of kind of the spiritual path of what you take out of it is hey, I got to do a fast you know. <laughs> well, well, you know, on the other side, it could easily be, you know, oh, this is a miserable experience. I'm going to be traumatized. You, you get a, you know, enlightenment experience out of it. It's a. I just thought that was a that was a quite a kind of on the it just this demonstration of kind of uh, following, you know, following that weird path of how you know the synchronicities can appear in 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 very odd ways. Yeah.
1: Well, you know, when you're a young guy, I mean, you, know, I don't know if you had the experience, but you want to push it a bit, you know. I mean, maybe it was just having. Uh, father and grandfather in the thick of world wars etc you know you have that young male impulse to push it to take it to the edge at least I did to do stuff that hadn't been done before to take some wild and crazy adventures and so I think it was part of just growing up you know dealing with a certain amount of hardship which was nothing compared to what previous generations had gone through. But, you know, that's how you become strong. That's how life tests you. That's one way of looking at it. So you become capable of contributing something of value to the world.
0: Yeah. So when when you kind of return to, you know, the – the no, I don't want to say the Western world. When you return to Vancouver, I guess, or California. California. Uh, where uh, – like, what, what do you – Basically, what I'm trying to ask is when, when this whole holistic kind of uh, commune thing starts to happen.
1: Yeah, well, you know, one of the things I, one of the core experiences that stayed with me from that hitchhiking to Machu Picchu was coming down to sea level again after being in the mountains under the stars, hitchhiking with indigenous peoples for months, it seemed, so that when I came down to sea level again and actually saw a city a Western-style industrial city, even in the relatively modest form of a southern Peruvian town called Arequipa, uh, just looking at people's faces. I remember going to see a movie there. It's in the book, WUSA, with Paul Newman, which is set on a radio station in New Orleans. But after the serenity of the mountains and the openness of the faces of the native peoples, just to look at the contorted, twisted, stressed looks on people's faces, just to look at the smokestacks pumping smoke into the atmosphere. I had, at the age of 24, I was fortunate in a way in that I had one of those direct moments of intuitive insight, direct knowing that Western industrial civilization was damaging, if not destroying our souls, and was damaging or destroying the environment and the biosphere. So I saw that very clearly. I think, you know, in retrospect, you could say it was kind of a vision quest, that journey, even though I wasn't familiar with the term vision quest at the time. But that it, that moment gave me a kind of an agenda of what my life was to be about. It was like, okay, well, how do we create some kind of alternative to this then, this consumerism, this materialism, this endless economic focus on economic growth, etc. Uh, the despoliation of the planet? What do we do? And so that's really how my sense was, well, you know, maybe we start to create these centers, these centers of consciousness, of a more holistic spirituality, of attunement to the natural world. And maybe you start to demonstrate to people, if you can, that it really is possible to live in some kind of harmony with other people. It doesn't have to be the mayhem of Chicago and New York City. Uh, And that's what led me up into the north of Scotland you know, to this place, Findhorn, the Finthorn Foundation or the Findhorn community, as it was called in the 1970s when I was there for three and a half years. Today, it remains a flourishing echo village and an international center of holistic learning that's really appreciated by the people up there in that obscure corner of Scotland, where it brings something like 15 million pounds now into the local economy through visitors from all over the world, etc. Oh, wow. But what? it's, it's hard to believe, you know, this was, this was three broke people living on a windswept trailer park in a not particularly romantic part of Northern Scotland. Um, And, you know, but those, the two women, it was two women and a guy, a former RAF squadron leader from the Second World War, Peter Caddy, but his wife, Eileen Caddy, had a remarkable meditative gift. She could really go deep inside, and she received in meditation, believe it or not, back in 1962, that that place, Fenton, this three three broke people living in a trailer park would actually become what she called using should we say spiritual imagery a center of light, and that it would in its own day become part of a network, a global network of light and Today, you know Finhorn is this thriving echo village with over a thousand or maybe a couple of thousand people within ten or twenty miles radius of it in northern Scotland. Uh, engaged with this work, it brings in people from all over the planet, as I was saying. And in fact, we do actually today have this global uh, network of holistic centers. That's a chapter in the book. It's called the Global Network of Holistic Centers. In fact, I'll be going up to Quebec City in a few weeks for the for the for the next get together because you know places like Esalen Institute, or I'm sure you would have heard of Brighton Bush there in Oregon and uh, other places like Hollyhock up in British Columbia. These centers, they're there. They're centers of holistic learning or being. And um, that's where people come for transformative experiences. So anyway, that's that's what led me up into the north of Scotland. Also, I was feeling, look, I'd traveled around the world to these exotic places, and I thought, well, maybe back home in my native country, I could still find some of the mystical Magic and beauty that there was in the Andes or in New Mexico, and lo and behold, I did find it and uh those were very valuable years for me at Fenton because it had been a kind of a lonely journey for me so Uh, That was finding community. I think I call that chapter, you know, the soul finds the heart expands, the soul finds community. So to meet, you know, when I arrived there, I paint a picture of arriving there in a snowstorm on New Year's Eve in the north of scotland and entering this dark well entering this lit up community center in the dark and the snow and walking in through these swing doors and having this immediate sense but i know half these people even though i had only met one of them before of 150 people in that room and today many of those people have gone on to be lifelong friends for me so it was not an arbitrary insight there was a sense of spiritual connection immediately when i got up there this was would be back in the waiting hours of 1975.
0: Yeah, that's, that's very interesting the way that works out. Uh, my so the, the the entire holistic kind of community thing. The one the, what strikes me, or the question I have, I guess, is how does this fit in? Like we're we're speaking over what is essentially the most amazing thing humanity's ever come up with. I mean, we the internet is is brilliant. I mean, this is fantastic, but. Let's face it these are these we're on computers that are built on not very great working conditions you know there there's a lot of backdoor stuff that's involved with the kind of the level of uh technological wizardry we're dealing with to have this conversation yeah and that's kind of that this balance and I can't get my head around that I love this idea like I love the whole holistic community idea but how does it how do we live in a world with iPhones while having you know, uh, the, the windswept, you know, northern <laughs> Scotland. Uh.
1: Well, I think we always have to be aware of the phenomenon that I call, and I think other people have called it too, new age narcissism. You know, people who just, uh, for whom it's their, their focal point is just their own getting their own spiritual path, their own health, their own personal growth together. I'm not saying that that's not a perfectly legitimate phase for somebody's life, but if all it ever does is remain focused on me and my path, and it doesn 't contribute anything to the world then it 's not achieving so much, so to me it 's always been that balance of the inner spiritual and psychological work, should we say, but also in intense social engagement in social, environmental, and political change. I think both of those are really crucial. you know it, it take, you go all the way back to Plato and uh, in ancient Greek. People, Greek citizens in Athens, who were not engaged with the uh, the political process, the affairs of the polis, the state, um, they were referred to as idiots. That's actually the origin of the word idiot: is somebody who is not involved in the political affairs of the day. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. You know, Plato yeah. was certainly one of the wisest people we've ever had in the West. So. Um, I do think whether you call it narcissism or naivete or just a certain amount of idiocy, really, I think it's up to us holistic people to balance the inner and the outer, the spiritual work with the work of social and political change. And uh, it's it ain't easy. You know, I must say that's been one of my big frustrations over the years, because so many people who are more holistically and spiritually oriented tend to be a bit oblivious of the political process. And to me, that's deeply foolish, but I'm that I'm somebody who's always been politically engaged from an early age. So I think we have to look for balance here and watch out for that danger of narcissism.
0: Yeah, the spirit yeah. Of narcissism, I think, is a great phrase to use for that. And that's something that uh, I I mean, I've certainly had my phases where I fell for that, where I just all I was doing is, you know, staring at tarot cards instead of actually paying attention to the universe. You know, I was purely focused inside and that's not a healthy way to live, but that balance is tough especially in the world you know it's like I mean it's amazing that you have a spiritual center in New York City that's I mean that like breaks my head open in a third way of how those well, two could yeah. exist with yeah
1: <laughs> and it's been there for 32 and a half years and I yeah. was saying really when we started it back in it began at a date I'll never forget it was a, it was a freezing January night and it was Friday the 13th 1984 in New York City oh, you know geez. the place they yeah, said it it's... could never be done. <laughs> Uh, so it was a formidable undertaking and, uh, but, yeah, it's been there a long time. There's Something like 300,000 people have come through. And there's, a you know, New York City has become increasingly holistic and spiritually oriented. As I was saying, there are, you know, there are yoga centers everywhere, meditation centers everywhere. Of uh, course, Whole Foods, it goes without saying, is now the largest uh, grocery store in Manhattan. Whereas when we started the open center, you know, the health food stores were a little mom-and-pop hole in the walls, um, so on, in so many ways, we've seen the change. Yeah, meditation was considered a fancy word for sleep. <laughs> now, now it's ubiquitous, especially in the mindfulness form of meditation. So, yeah, it's it's there, and it's uh, I think it's had an impact. And of course, you know, if people haven't been to New York, the stereotype of New Yorkers is that they're a brusque, aggressive, sort of obnoxious, in-your-face uh, set of people. Uh, but in fact I find New Yorkers are actually very friendly and you know what they really appreciate a character (laughs) and we like somebody who goes for it that's why there's all those people cheering on the marathon runners even if they're coming last out of the whole field it's just somebody who's crazy enough to go for it and run 20 or try to run 26 miles I mean they deserve support so yes actually New York is is a pretty open conscious place and it's filled with creative people who want to have an impact in the world so actually even even though it's sort of counterintuitive that it would be a spiritual and holistic center in New York, actually, we can say it's actually a great place for it because there are so many gifted and committed people
0: here. Yeah, that does make sense. I mean, there's there's a reason that kind of punk rock and a bunch of other, you know, important artistic movements came out of New York. You know, this is, you know, that is a place where kind of artistic energy does seem to coalesce every, you know, X number of years.
1: Yeah, well, you know, everybody you meet in New York, whether whether it's the waitress at the local coffee shop or whatever it is, I mean, they're they're all something different. They're all writers or actors or you know something or the other. So not everybody, of course, but so many people, at least in Manhattan and certain parts of Queens and Brooklyn, especially, uh, are uh, are come from that creative world, and they're the kind of people who would be are interested in a place like the New York Open Center.
0: Yeah, it's certainly interesting. There's another, uh, kind of uh, on a tangent, you, Have you are you familiar with, uh, uh, what's his name, Alex de Grey? Alex Grey? That Alex uh, Grey, yeah, I know Alex Oh, Gray. okay, he uh, just opened, I haven't been there, I, I grew up on the East Coast, but I moved out here about a decade ago, and he just opened up like the Chapel of Infinite sacred. Cosmic Mirrors or something, seems super interesting. The of Sacred Mirrors, yeah. yeah. It used
1: to be in New York City, and now he's opened it up about maybe an hour north of the city in the country somewhere. Yeah, I mean, Alex Grey is... Uh, is one of America's leading psychedelic artists and uh, has done a lot of beautiful work really portraying the, uh, the subtle bodies of the human being, what Rudolf Steiner would call the etheric and astral bodies that beyond our physical bodies. Um, so uh, yeah, I, I'm a fan of Alex's work and I think he's doing, I think he's doing excellent work up there at the chapel of sacred mirrors.
0: Yeah. That's immediately what I think of as New York. Now I, I, I wrote a book a while ago that uh, featured heavily upstate New York about, you know, how, you know, basically there was quite a bit of strange cults. I don't want to use that term, a cult <laughs> activity, you know, uh, for a while. They had the weird Vatsky believers were there and the weird spiritualist movements and the guy that found Mormonism popped through for a bit. And New York's right. been, if you look at, if you look at it more, it's actually New York is, Kind of the weirder one, because <laughs> as far as things that actually started there, you know, the West Coast is just kind of a lot of laid-back people and people in saris. <laughs> Well, you
1: know, as you probably know, having written this book, you know, 19th century, in the 19th century, uh, the upstate New York was referred to as the burned-over district. It was filled with uh, r- religious revival meetings. You know, the, the original spiritualist came out of Rochester. As you were saying, the guy Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism, Thought he had discovered those gold tablets also up there in that neck of the woods. I mean, there's a whole, there's a whole, actually I don't know if you're familiar with the writer Jocelyn Godwin, but he's just written a whole excellent book about the whole history. He teaches at Colgate University upstate, and he's written a whole book about all of these unusual, often eccentric spiritual movements that arose in the 19th century up there. In fact, you could say that sort of mid to early 19th century upstate New York was the California of its day (laughs) in terms of having every imaginable, bizarre spiritual trip in the book.
0: Uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's actually just, that was the phrase I was avoiding was uh, the book takes place in the Burt district. I was like, oh, look at you. <laughs> that's, um, it's, I mean, I guess this is kind of, well, I mean, I can just ask you. So over the course of the book, you know, you, you do make reference to uh, knowing people with, um, you know, gifts, I suppose you'd say, you know, psychics or intuitives, etc. W- what's your feeling on that? I mean, I guess that's the best way to ask Another thing, I've always, I'm, I'm dead center somewhere between materialism and just a full out believer in everything. That mm-hmm. one day I swear I'm going to be able to levitate something, and the next day I, I believe everything's <laughs> based in science. So anytime yeah. I hear about someone that's run into firsthand experience with something like that, especially something that I think is on a valid way, you know, kind of meditative based, you know, somebody that did the work to get something, I, I just well, always like. Eh.
1: Yeah, well, you know, I've met people who unquestionably had intuitive gifts. They used to be, I don't know if she's still with us, but the wonderful Anne Armstrong and her brother Jim, who were California's probably best known intuitive. They used to teach intuitive development at the Open Center 30 years ago. Anne Armstrong was just, she could, well, you could just uh, give her a brief. Sentence or phrase about somebody, and she would tune in, and she would have that person nailed the essence of them immediately. I've never come across an intuitive gift like that, and really, I think I think people were skeptical of uh, intuitive capabilities. Uh, should have, Well, I have the experience of being in a relationship with somebody who's got some of that. <laughs> to, uh, my girlfriend at Findhorn was very well intuitively <laughs> developed. And I can tell you, you don't get away with anything <laughs> if you have a girlfriend who uh, she can read you like a book and pick up an, an any kind of a micro vibe you know, she'd be walking, we'd be walking down the beach in Scotland together, she'd be reading the clouds. Uh, You know, this is a very gifted person who's gone Uh on to do a doctorate and write a whole series of books. This is no new age space cadet. I mean, this is just somebody in their 20s. She was a black belt in Aikido as well, but she just happened to be an incredible intuitive as well. So I've met people like this, I don't doubt it. But you know, Bringing together spirituality and science, that's what I love about Rudolf Steiner because he called his whole spiritual path, his whole path, which he feels we more and more people need to embrace or if they freely choose to do so. he called it spiritual science and it was about bringing that same scientific spirit which we really need, you know, of impeccable observation, of objectivity, of autonomy. We really needed all of that in the 17th and 18th century to break out of the uh, years of uh, religious prejudice and stupidity and war, etc. But we need, instead of having that science or that scientific mindset applied exclusively to the outer sense-perceptible material world, the view Steiner took, is that we need to take that same scientific perspective and apply it to the, the inner world, the inner spiritual world. And that's why, you know, above the oracle at Delphi, they had the phrase, know thyself. Because you can't go into the inner world of, say, imaginative cognition using imagination as the first step towards knowledge of higher worlds, as Steiner would call it. You can't do that if you don't know yourself. If you're still caught up in all your own fantasies and egos and fears and so on. So that's why you have to know yourself. But I, I think that I think you know Steiner, for instance, and I share. I'm an admirer of the scientific spirit. I think it's been one of the great achievements of humanity. But it, we don't want to be sucked into uh, what's been called the superstition of scientific materialism. Of course, scientists today, scientific materialists, like to present themselves as having the ultimate word on the nature of being, um, that we are nothing more than just this random collection of molecules and atoms you know, wandering around the universe uh, that came into existence for no apparent reason. Uh, I think that is, that's a worldview that has been Replaced in the early 20th century when quantum science and quantum physics arose. We already know now that the universe operates in far more mysterious ways. Than uh, materialistic 19th science, century science used to think. And yet, a lot of people still remain stuck in that mindset. And really, I mean, what we keep on learning about the universe, I mean, whether it's dark matter that we knew nothing about recently, or then there was that thing that just happened recently where the, the Earth's gravity or the, the universe's gravitational field somehow spoke to us and we heard the sound of the universe mm-hmm. for the first time. I mean, you know, we didn't even know that electricity existed 150 or whatever years ago, and we think that we have sorted out the ultimate mysteries of the universe when some of those tiny specks in the in the sky turned out to be not just planets or stars or its solar systems; they're not even galaxies. Some of those tiniest specks. Visible in the sky are galaxies of galaxies. I mean, that was the great virtue for me of spending those nights in the Andes under those incredible starlit skies: is that it gives you a sense of humility, in the sense that we can we only know so little. You know, whether micro speck on the corner of the Milky Way galaxy in a vast universe, and uh, we need some humility rather than asserting that scientific materialism has the final word on the nature of reality.
0: Yeah, it's, it's something I struggle with, because what you're saying just rings completely true to me. But there's a certain amount of I drop a pen and it drops that's stuck in my head that it's, well, we can proceed from gravity. And there's so much science that like just works to describe the world that it's hard for me to kind of not think that way in a certain level to not uh, just go to the materialist view You yeah, know I well, really I mean, feel like that, it's not true <laughs>
1: well it's the prevailing mindset isn't yeah. it I mean that's what we're educated in school or if you study science at university that's, that's still the prevailing worldview. but you know talking of gravity Isaac Newton himself wrote far more on alchemy than he ever actually did on you know the falling apple and <laughs> the forces of gravity and all the rest of it
0: oh yeah my uh, atheist yeah. friends hate when I point that out to them Oh, they hate that. <laughs> <'Cause>, <laughs> I'm like, sorry, I, hey, he's got a, I've a on my side. Oh,
1: there's is on alchemy, so you know I have a of sense of what that's about. So. <laughs> Yeah, I I just think, you know, it's going to take a while for that old, rigid, scientific materialistic mindset to go. And I I like that phrase. It's a Steiner phrase, the superstition of scientific materialism. Right now, people who embrace that worldview look upon anybody who might believe in reincarnation or subtle bodies or intuitive communication as fantasists. It's just people caught like uh, naive children in some superstitious view of the world but i think that time will show that scientific materialism is in fact a superstition
0: yeah i i tend to agree there's the 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 current trend of the strident fundamentalist atheism i think has really shown that where it just you've become someone that just says these, you know again like someone telling me to do something just immediately i don't want to it's when someone says that something is definitively right or wrong and it's, yeah. it, that just, that's not very scientific. You can't, like, if you're saying there's no gods, that's not a scientific statement. That's, you can't prove that. It's just, no, you it, can't. It just, th- you know, it th- it, and you're right. Yeah, superstition is kind of the way we've moved it. And it's a good way. Yeah, to- and
1: also those guys, a lot, you know, people like Christopher Hitchens. I mean, I enjoyed Christopher Hitchens' writings. He did, I, I really appreciated that film he did on Henry Kissinger. But, you know, he became increasingly reactionary and yeah. alcoholic, the older he got. And uh, the problem is, people like him even though he may have had decent intentions they have a simplistic view of religion and spirituality as if it's just the kind of mainstream stuff that i'd already had enough of by the time i was 13 they don't go to they don't investigate the great mystical traditions of the world like sufism and islam etc or the gnostic and neoplatonic and hermetic traditions in the west uh, you know, or things like yoga and so on, and they just—they just, they have a very elementary understanding of what religion is. I mean, I'm—you know—it's a cliche now, but I've—I've I've used that phrase for years. I've—I've I've never been a religious person, but I've been a spiritual person since I was 21, and uh, nowadays, because that's the growing—that's the largest uh, demographic that's growing, the most rapidly growing demographic should we say in america is people who consider themselves spiritual or they say that they're none of the above they don't subscribe to any particular religion they're not necessarily atheists but many of them are spiritual without being religious and i think that's the way we should be you know we should be open to the world's spiritual traditions but find our own path use our own intelligence our sense of freedom our own discernment our own judgment to as our guide
0: yeah, I, yes. I, I, if the word kind of carries too much connotation now, but I, I always wanted to just be agnostic in the, in what it means, just without knowledge, just yeah, blank slate, learn as much as you can, you know, any any claims towards understanding divinity, I think is even divinity is the wrong word, but any claims towards understanding that level of universe, it just feels a little bit just egotistical, you know.
1: Oh well, I think we, well, you know, I think there are remarkably gifted people out there. I mean, there are some of the most striking figures in the history of civilization who have left us amazing legacies, the the perennial philosophy, as uh, Aldous Huxley called it. Um, So in my view, after having reached the ripe old age of 67, is that there are uh, certain people, writers, etc., who do have genuine insight into a deeper reality, um, but we, sh- we shouldn't swallow any of their teachings hook, line, and sinker. We really need to use, exercise our own intelligence around it and never give up our freedom.
0: Yeah, yeah. When when I say you know people, I'm not referring to you know the the you know the what are the incarnations of Krishna consciousness that comes into the universe. I mean yeah. you know my friend Bill. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah. the 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 people I'm going to run into on an everyday basis in my life. <laughs> yeah, sure. So yeah. how I mean. How would you say, kind of, you're, you know, obviously we're not trying to tell people how to do things, but what would you think a good path for someone that's interested in this stuff? Like, what's their, what do you think a good first step would be?
1: Well, what is a good first step? I mean, I think it is the virtue of having these places like, you know, Brighton Bush or the Open Center or Esalen. Uh, why not tune into what might be going on in one of these places and just go there for an experimental day or for a weekend. Or, or or if you don't want to travel any distance, just check out what may be going on in your own little neighborhood, the days when these things were rare. So many little bookstores uh, will have lectures or there could be meditation centers. Uh, and and people, I think people just have to use their own intuition. Are they drawn towards a Sufi path? You know, it's it's one of the ironies that with all the prejudice against Islam today that the most well-read poet in America is a, a Muslim. That's a Rumi who is a Sufi. People don't know about that whole beautiful mystical side of Islam that has, is the antithesis of the nightmarish fundamentalism of Al-Qaeda and ISIS. Um, And the Wahhabi worldview that the Saudis have been propagating all these decades. So I go into a bookstore, look around, see what draws you, follow your own mystical path, you know, Uh, just follow your heart. Uh, Don't give up. If, If you have these nagging impulses towards some kind of deeper sense of the world can, can there be a deeper meaning then set out to see if you can find it I mean of course that's what the old stories of the quest for the Holy Grail are all about world literature is filled with this this is what Joseph Campbell spoke about the hero's journey you know the person who sets off discontented with their own culture journeys into distant lands whether metaphorically or psychologically goes through various tests, challenges is aided by the larger macrocosm and then returns Returns to the culture with something of benefit that can enrich or fructify it. Um, so, how does that all start? It starts by listening to the questions that keep on coming up for you, or the issues, or the interests, or the passions, and following them. After all, you know what have we got to go on other than our own inner sense of direction, our, uh, by following our own heart, or by finding a path for the heart.
0: Yeah, it's good very good way to put it. and just following your own heart I think is something that we're a little bit not accustomed to at least in the, you know, kind of the oh. world that I found myself living in where it's everything has to be a, you know, a, a yes or no binary, you know. If if you right. don't believe and in we'll
1: leave you all know. the pressure to get a job, you know, all the young yeah. people graduating with huge debts these days, get a job, sign up for corporate America, you know. And uh but then all these more profound concerns can just slip away, and next thing you know, you wake up, you're 45 years old, and you've never really done anything in your life that you really wanted to do. But, you know, it's better to wake up then than not to wake up at all until you realize that on your deathbed, you know, that's one of the the, lead, the leading regret of the dying, It said, is that people regret that they did not live the life they really wanted to live they spent the life they lived the life they thought others wanted them to live so if people bear in mind that according to an australian nurse who worked for the, with the dying for many years and who wrote a book about it that is the number one regret of the dying i've done a lot of work at the open center around dying a 20-year conference series called the art of dying spiritual scientific practical approaches to living and dying and this is really true. You know, they say use death as your advisor. We're only we're only dancing on this earth for a short while, as old Cat Stevens said. And uh we'd we better make the best of it instead of just letting life slip by in a dream.
0: Yeah. Uh, How do you doing
1: what other people want us to do?
0: Yeah, that is that's something that I I've, I've been trying to get in my head. I, I find myself complaining that uh, I'm going, Oh, I'm so old. I find myself saying, I'm thirty-five. <laughs> I, you know, I've, I've written a couple books. I've been doing a show for five years and I find myself going, Oh, I haven't done enough. And it's like, Oh, God damn it. I have to remind myself of that, that at least I'm aware of this, at least of, you know, cause it's, there is, that is that thing of, of um, what's that lady's name that wrote the death book. She's super famous. I read it in college. Uh,
1: it's Ross. Yes,
0: exactly. You know, it's that, that, Hey, at least having an awareness at 35, 45, 50, whatever it is, it's not on your deathbed. You know, there's always that next thing to do then
1: that's right but then you know if you're not careful boom another 20 years go by and you're still <laughs> wanting to do what it sounds like but you've done what you really wanted to do you've done this show for five years and you've written a couple of books so i mean you've already expressed yourself significantly in sounding your own unique voice in this world
0: yeah that's you know i, I would that's the thing i'm trying to get my head around but unfortunately uh that's that, uh, the old, the, the heart cries, I want, I want, you know? So it's, for me, yeah. there's almost that downside of like, oh crap, that's, that's really all I had in my head to do. Well, what now? You know, this is that, <laughs> that's what I was asking about the hepatitis or, or, you know, that, you know, in the Camblyan thing, you know, when you run into that first obstacle is what do you do in the lulls? You know, I, like for me right now, I'm in a spiritual doldrum, you know, I yeah. just, uh. I have no wind in my sails. So I have no idea what to do other than the fact that
1: uh, yeah, yeah, well I I understand totally Ice because you know when I wrote the book it was very important for me to to make clear to readers that it it wasn't just a breeze. It wasn't just like, yeah, you know, I hitchhiked to Machu Picchu, then I wound up in California, and then I wound up in the north of Scotland, and it was just one, you know, one door opened after another. It didn't work that way. I went through plenty of times of being in those lulls of going, oh, there's nothing happening in my life. I don't know what the hell to do next, you know. I mean, in between Findhorn and Omega, I wound up, you know, I was I was weeding people's gardens and cleaning people's houses in Berkeley. And then I even wound up, you know, picking pears and apples with migrant laborers, mostly Mexican migrant laborers in the uh, in the Hood River Valley of Oregon. I mean, things just didn't click, you know. And, and or when I left graduate school or before I left for Machu Picchu, I was stuck up there in Vancouver and wondering, you know, what I was doing. And I'd blown my life. I'd walked out of out of any kind of academic career to follow some kind of strange spiritual path and things weren't working. I was trying to sell ecology magazines door to door and making a quarter on each and getting doors shut out of my face. and sitting there on the beach at night looking at those freighters bobbing in the harbor wondering what the hell I was doing with my life. I mean I just think this is an an inevitable part of following the path. It just it, you know we're not living in a heavenly realm here. Things doors don't just open for us. We have to keep the faith as old Travis Smiley would say and uh and keep on trucking. Stay, you know, stay connected to your inner sense of things. And keep your ears open and your eyes open and see what life brings you or what promptings surge up in your heart and soul that might propel you in this, that or the other direction. But but yeah, that was a very important I'm really glad. You know, I'm not somebody who easily self discloses, but it, it did come to me and in retrospect I'm really glad I did it. I put I tried to include anyway, those moments of, of weakness, of confusion, of doubt, of depression. Uh I think it's important. The people, I think you just have to go through those and they're made worse by the fact of thinking oh I should be on to the next thing immediately I, but it doesn't work that way and we just have to accept that there are going to be downtimes. You know, there's going to be a little yang, yin as well as the yang of being fully active and that's the nature of living in the material world but don't give up I think that's one of the messages in my book is don't give up hang in there stay true to what you have passion for and with a bit of luck, you know, the universe just might uh, support you in it. Certainly, that's been my case.
0: Yeah. yeah. There's, uh, not to give away the the tale, because listeners at home, there's uh, – he he fucking snuck into Tibet. It would, there's this incredible story. It's fantastic. Uh, I probably worded that wrong. I don't know anything about geography. But that whole section was fantastic. But you, that's one point you described of – you know, uh, you know, I've, I don't want to give away the, you know, the the crux, but like, oh, I've done enough. I mean, how much further can I go? Maybe I could just turn back around and, uh, you know, kind of in the back of my head, I'm like, no, Ralph, don't give up, keep going. You know, it's rooting for you, and you know, it's very, you know, it was demonstrative. Wow. Yeah.
1: Yeah, well, I'll just give the listeners a little bit of a hint of it. Yes, oh, please, that's the please. longest please. chapter in the book. Actually, it's called Request from the Oracle of Tibet. And it was, I'd spent a month in the Nechung, or, oracle, or the Nechung Monastery, the Monastery of the State Oracle, the last functioning political oracle in the world in Dharamsala, back at the time of the before the Tiananmen Square Massacre. And, uh, and at the end of that month in the monastery, the senior monk who'd barely got out of Tibet alive, the... Um, because the Chinese really wanted the, the monk serving as the vehicle for the oracle and the head monk. They were their top targets after the Dalai Lama himself. They were being burned in effigy. Um, but, you know, he he came to me, the senior monk, and asked me if I would take some, um, should we say, contraband, politically contraband material into Tibet because he'd heard I was taking the, the first flight of the year from Kathmandu to Lhasa um and he said that if i did it they would put me under the protection of the Nechung Chogyam, the Nechung protector because i happened to be there when they were doing their five-day ritual invocation of the protected deity of tibet and the dalai lama and i'd asked if i could join them to meditate with them so i guess that was why they thought i was the right person so you know i agreed to do it and but the flights were closed because there were demonstrations in Tibet. People were being shot on sight. And it looked like it was impossible to go. But then I met a guy in Kathmandu who told me about a, a route last into eastern Tibet last done in the 1920s by a guy called Joseph Rock who wrote a few articles about it in National Geographic Journey to the Land of the Yellow Lama. And so that's as far as I'll take it for our readers. So it was a question of crossing the mountains the eastern himalayas into eastern tibet the world of calm kham, k-h-a-m the world of the wild camper warriors you know, you think of tibetans as these contemplative monks with shaved heads these dudes are like wild renegade half-breed cowboys they've all got long hair incredibly long hair they all have huge earrings they say a man without an earring will be be born as a donkey they're formidable riders a lot of them are crack shots. they all carry swords And uh, they're amazing people. They protected the borders of Eastern Tibet for centuries and uh, thought to be descendants of Genghis Khan's people. Uh, So yeah, so I entered into their world, really, which is a rarely visited part of Tibet, not the great plateaus that we think of, um, but the huge, the the, the Tibetans call it four mountains, six ranges. Uh, No, sorry, uh, four rivers, six ranges. Um, to describe this area. And I've never seen huge uh, valleys, I mean, gazing thousands of feet down. But yes, it's it's a whole journey into that world. So uh, let's just say that I experienced that and then I experienced, when I got out of it and got out of Tibet, I found myself in post Tiananmen Square, China, thinking I might be the last Westerner left in the country and wondering how I was going to explain it to the secret police. And uh, yeah, so that's it's the story of doing that. And it was a profound experience. And but I'll leave it to our readers because I don't want people to feel it's just a, a ponderous tome about, uh, you know, consciousness and my own spiritual search itself. There's real adventure in the book. I wrote it to be uh, entertaining and gripping, uh, which people tell me it is.
0: Oh, totally.
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah. So whether it's hitchhiking to Machu Picchu when I'm 23, or whether it's responding to that request from the Oracle of Tibet, uh, there's adventure and, um, and fun in this book too. So I think people. I hope. Well, I'm told people really enjoy it. Yeah, it's a page turner. Yeah, it
0: sounds like it sounds like the kind of thing. Well, I read it, so I know it's the kind of thing my audience would like. Um, though on that note, one of the uh, and I can't get uh, I can't get ready before I ask this because my audience will slaughter me once they read it. You saw just a random UFO that you just throw away in a couple of paragraphs. Yeah, well... <laughs>
1: i i initially didn't include that you know and Then i thought i really should put this in the book because it remains one of the most inexplicable experiences i've had in, in the whole of my life i've personally never been that interested in ufos I and mean, it's not it has not been a passion or something i'm I'm open. I mean, the world is mysterious. I don't dismiss anything, but I'd never seen one or gone looking for one or really ever really read much about it. But yes, I do describe this episode where I'm up in a very remote part of the mountains of Eastern Tibet, uh, almost certainly in a place where no Westerner had ever gone before. And I'm with a teenager, a Sino Tibetan teenager called Shinkaka, and we're camped out of, well, there weren't any really maps, but it must have been 13, 14,000 feet. And I'm in a little tent, my little orange tent. Trying to stay warm in my sleeping bag, because it was freezing cold, even though it was June. And then I hear this young teenager running down, and that he he couldn't say Ralph. The closest he could get was Lurfer, but I can still, right now, I can still hear him saying it in my head: Lurfer, Lurfer, Lurfer. You know, with, with increasing urgency. And I opened the tent door and poked my head out, and he was pointing up in the sky. And there was this totally stationary spherical orb up in the sky. It looked like it was, I don't know, two, three, four thousand feet up above these uh, cylindrical kind of uh, rather conical um mountain peaks that were above us. And I looked at that, and it was a, we were way above the cloud level. It was a pure, uh, clear sky. I've always had excellent eyesight. And I couldn't see anything you know, like a gondola or some kind of basket or something. And, and yet it, I watched it for about 20 minutes and it was just so cold, I had to get back in my sleeping bag. But it was absolutely stock still and stationary in the sky. I thought, well, what on earth is there? What is there that is spherical? It wasn't radiating light the way UFOs are, are normally presented, it was reflecting light. It's, it had a sort of so I remember a kind of a coppery or burnish quality to it, but it was reflecting the way the moon does or something. And, um, Anyway, I thought, well, what can it be? The only possible explanation is that it's some kind of meteorological balloon or something that is being winched up and down from some stationary point on the ground. Anyway, the next morning, Shinkaka and I went up to these nomads, these Tibetan nomads, and, you know, they were speaking uh, Chinese and Tibetan. I mean, I could just take a few words in Chinese. I can count to... (laughs) to 10. <laughs> I, could, I think at that point I could count to 100. But basically, when you go to China, the first phrase that you learn is, putong, putong, wo putong, which means I don't understand. And you, I could tell that Shinkaka was asking these nomads about it. And they pointed to exactly where it was in the sky. And they said, three nights, three nights, putong, 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 we don't understand. And, uh, so, I mean, they, and then when we crossed the pass the next, uh, an hour or so later, it was just a sea of mountains stretching out to the horizon. There was no, there was one tiny little path. There were no, there was no meteorological station up there. So I, that remains an enigma for me. I don't know what to make of it. I just felt I should put it in them in my book because it was a genuine experience And it's left me more open-minded about there being pot there are mysterious forces, things, elements in the night sky. I don't have an explanation for that, but but I felt I should pass it on to people so we can all live. And if anybody else has a similar experience, or maybe somebody has researched this, I don't know what it is now, but it was a very, yeah, I'll never forget it.
0: No, oh, That's fantastic. That's fantastic. I, I, I've i said on the show before, anytime I talk about like anomalous kind of 14 subjects, that the yeah. stories that I I am drawn to are the ones like that, where it's not, you didn't make some big deal out of it. It wasn't like this, it's just throw away, you know, three, not throw away, but you know, what, three, four sentences. And I'm like, oh, that's, that's the ones that ring of truth to me. That's all I'm ever searching for in the world. It's just like a little bit of truth and it's just like, yeah, what are you supposed to do? Like, it was cold out. I'm not going to, if I'm staring at the thing for 20 minutes, what what more can I glean? I, I want to go to bed. <laughs> right.
1: really. Yeah, I mean, in the interest of science or something, I wanted to stay out there all night and observe it. I didn't have a telescope or anything, but uh, it was so bloody cold up yeah. at that altitude I had to get back. But 20 minutes was long enough to see this thing was stock still in the sky, going nowhere. And there is nothing that is spherical that does that unless it's, connected to the ground through a cable
0: yeah that's so cool yeah, it's just one of those things that just jumped out at me I'm big, yeah uh, i just anything anything strange any kind of bigfoot or ufo i just i want to know about <laughs> yeah i don't you know like if i believe it. in any of them but they're interesting
1: there's something mysterious going on there
0: yeah, well um we're you know pretty much past our hour here uh, anything that we glossed over anything you want to tell the audience? or uh...
1: I just want to mention the book, you know, again, the title of the book. It, it's called uh, The Jeweled Highway, On the Quest for a Life of Meaning. If you, you can find it on Amazon if you just put Ralph White, The Jeweled Highway. Uh, it'll come up and you'll see uh, various reviews. It's been very well reviewed, I'm, I'm glad to say. Uh, people might want to check out my own website, which is ralphwhite.net has uh, interviews and writings and so on, uh, on it, plus some of the things that I myself lecture about. Uh, I think, you know, I'm going to be doing, we haven't really got into it, I mentioned it in passing, but I've been doing this 20, it's now 21 year series of conferences on the Western esoteric tradition that all began in Bohemia. There's that chapter in the book called In Praise of Bohemia, Rediscovering the Lost Spiritual History of the West. Anyway, I didn't know when that started off at a little town called Chesky Krumlov in Bohemia the southern bohemian mecca of alchemists. When I stumble across that in the early 90s, right in the aftermath of communism, this perfectly preserved jewel of a town that was hidden behind the Iron Curtain for 60 years, I had no idea I would be setting in motion this 21-year conference series. But uh, this year, in late August, we're going to Iceland, actually. It's going to be an esoteric quest for the mysteries of the north in Iceland. Uh, so out on the Snæfellsnes Peninsula in the west of Iceland, that's where Jules Verne set his famous story, Journey to the Center of the Earth. It's an ancient sacred mountain uh, in that area. So anyway, if people interested in that potentially might want to go to um, esotericquest.org to find out about that upcoming event. And then there's, you know, the Open Center, where I've worked, which I'm co-founder of which is, as we've mentioned, the main center for holistic learning in New York City for the last 32 years. That's opencenter.org. And uh, let's see. Last thing would be just I mentioned we we've, we've done this work around dying, which is deeply moving to me. When I did the first conference on dying, you know I thought, oh my god, this is going to be so depressing. How am I going to get through a weekend of this? And in fact, I found getting together with five hundred, eight hundred people, many of them professionals who work in that field, is actually one of the most life-enhancing experiences I've ever had. <laughs> it's wonderful. You know, you face humanity's deepest fear directly dying and you find that there's an amount an enormous amount of liberation and energy that is actually released from dealing with that because our culture is still in massive denial around death we used to be in denial around sex but that's not so much now and now it's more death and we need to step there but things are changing more holistic approaches to working with the dying are changing of course and there are more different perspectives on what death actually is, especially as people are being resuscitated these days we had a wonderful uh, Dutch cardiologist called Pim Van Lommel at our last conference in New York in April speaking about what people's experiences are when they come back from being resuscitated which science is now making more and more feasible and he noticed that a certain percentage come back with memories, about 15% and then he started noticing that they actually have are parallel. They spoke of some kind of similar reality, and he wrote a, a best selling book about this. So, I think, you know, so if, if people are interested in that, if they go to org. They can. Uh, I realize we share, we share the name with a, with a heavy metal rock band. I gather called the Art of Dying, but I got it from a, a George Harrison song on that great album, All Things Must Pass, which was playing when I was going down Route sixty six in Christmas of nineteen seventy. At my moment of big awakening. So, yeah, the Art of, art of Dying dot org. So I think yeah, all those different things. But I just want to come back, particularly to mention the book, The Jeweled Highway. You can. Get it from the publisher's website or, of course, your local bookstore may be carrying it. But it is, I've tried to put in it as honestly as I can what I've learned from my experience of being involved with this movement for a, a more holistic and ecological world. And uh, I think our listeners will enjoy it.
0: Yeah, I second it. I, I enjoyed it myself. I was, was glad to get it, glad to read it, and you know, very glad you came on.
1: Good. Well, thanks, Alex. It's been a pleasure.
0: Oh, thank you. Have a good one.
1: Well, wishing you all the best. Okay. Bye-bye.